It's uh, really hard as I continue to spend time reflecting on the book of Lamentations to not constantly have my mind drawn to the events uh, that are unfolding in Ukraine because they there's just such, uh, uh, to my mind, a correlation between this this small, uh, uh, you know, t tiny country that's getting uh, wiped out by a, a large and invading force. And of course, uh, it's useful in as much as it helps us to understand the devastation. Uh, it's less useful for us to uh, draw a one-for-one -one comparison in terms of the theology of what's happening. So. Uh, as I do, uh, if I do refer to these things, let's not think that Lamentations is a book that's, that somehow one-to-one -one uh, matches what's happening uh, in the Ukraine. But nonetheless, uh, on Wednesday, I opened up my Instagram account and I noticed that uh, President Zelensky uh, had posted a series of pictures which chronicled the complete and utter destruction of many of the cities in his nation. And really, as I've followed the news, it's only got worse since. And as you scrolled through it, you, you could not be but horrified at the pictures of the, the, the death and the destruction that uh, the Russian army has uh, put upon the people of Ukraine. But at the bottom, he captioned it with these words, we will restore everything. Every street of every city, every house, every apartment, we will direct all our efforts to this and all the help of the world. We are already forming funds for Ukraine to live. What a note of hope in the midst of an ongoing and escalating tragedy. I'm still here, we're still fighting, and we will rebuild. And in some senses, that note of hope in the midst of despair is what we see here in chapter 3 of Lamentations. In fact, it's really the only chapter where there is any hope. But it is hope which is still surrounded by pain and sin and suffering. And what we see as we'll work our way through the, the chapter uh, in sort of broad brushstrokes today is that we have here human suffering and evil and divine compassion and goodness. And we kind of see how these things go together a bit. Some context. Lamentations uh, is uh, a book written at the fall of Jerusalem uh, to the Babylonians in 587 BC. And so far we've seen in the opening two chapters that these poems, acrostic poems, the first two have been, where the first line of each verse has started with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, have been uh, poems which have been either addressing Jerusalem or speaking as Jerusalem um, and chronicling the, the pain and the suffering that has come before them. And it's, and it's been brutal to read. And what we see now in chapter 3 is that it becomes more personal for this writer. He's not just someone who sat at the sidelines and observed and written. He's someone who has lived through it. He's a participant in these sufferings. We see that in the opening verse of our chapter today, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction 
by the rod of the Lord's wrath. This is his kind of uh, uh, beginning, his personal kind of chronicling of the destruction which he himself has lived through. And before we dive in, I just want to notice, want to get you to notice something. Back in chapters 1 and 2, we saw 22 verses. And yet, if you have a look in your Bibles, you can have a look. Lamentations is on about page 670-ish, I believe. 672 to get to chapter 3. There we go. Uh, So if you uh, look back uh, at the first two chapters and then look at chapter 3, you'll notice that though chapters 1 and 2 are 22 verses and chapter 3 is 66 verses, um, they're actually broadly speaking, the same length. They take up the same amount of column space in your Bible. And the reason for that is because this central poem here with this note of hope, the poetry's got maybe more sophisticated or maybe more clever. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the right uh, word is, but basically every single line, uh, it's grouped in threes, and so every single line of the three lines of each stanza is an acrostic. So verses 1, 2 and 3 all start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verses 4, 5 and 6 all start with the second letter and so on and so forth. Um, Unlike in the opening two chapters where it was just the first line of each verse and then uh, it was less structured. So that that's just interesting kind of poetry structure and it explains why this particular chapter has 66 verses and not 22. We're trying, it's trying to signal to you that something different's going on here than in the other chapters. Well, poetic technique aside, because of course this isn't a lecture on poetry, what does it convey? It conveys to us tragedy. Verses 1 to 18, they describe the author's personal tragedy and suffering and despair as he's witnessed and and been victim of the horrors of Jerusalem's destruction. And he chronicles through those verses as you uh, cast your eyes over them that God has turned his hand against him, that he's trapped him in the midst of this pain and suffering, that it feels as though he's been hunted by God uh, and this destruction and he cannot escape, that, that he and his people have been made a mockery of and this has ultimately driven him to total and utter despair. It's grim stuff and it ends in verse 18. So I say my splendour is gone and all that I have hoped from the Lord. It's all gone. And that verse 18 is actually the first time the writer's got to sort of mentioning the Lord. And it's interesting because as he mentions God for the first time, as God enters his mind, as he's saying, this is completely awful and terrible and just the worst, he sort of mentions God and it's like, This turns something on in his brain. Because he says then in verses 19 through 21 that maybe there is hope. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. He goes from everything is gone and there is no hope And having mentioned the Lord and 
recognising the desperate situation and the, and the terrible situation he's in, he's now able to call something to mind. And what is it that he brings to his mind? Or another way of sort of uh, translating the Hebrew there would be to say, uh, cause to return to his heart. Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. In the midst of the most terrible suffering and pain, hear this poet as he's chronicled his own personal experience of it, makes this deliberate decision to fill his heart, mind and soul with hope as he thinks on the Lord. It's a, it's a perspective change. And it's a change which is a deliberate act in the midst of the horrible pain and suffering with which he is living through. My splendour is gone and all that I hope for is from the Lord. Hope is gone, but now I've refocused my mind and hope has returned. He's remembered who God is. And even though the exile has come, even though God's judgment is being poured out on sin, God still must be God. The God who revealed himself to Moses. The poet would know off the top of his heart and deep within his soul those famous words as God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. Key phrases in the Jewish uh, uh, expression of their faith in God. As he passed, let me read to you Exodus 34, 6. As he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's who God is. Even as the poet sits amidst the pain and destruction of his city. And that's who he tells us God is as he continues his poem, verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never failed. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. No matter what God has, uh, has done, no matter what God has allowed to happen, all his actions must be viewed in light of who God is known to be. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It's remarkable stuff. Remarkable that this guy who spent two and a half chapters almost to, at this point, cataloging God's judgment and the destruction of God's people and God's city by God's hand at the, uh, through the Babylonians, that this guy who can describe God as having turned his hand against him, who, who describes him as having trapped him in the midst of pain and suffering, hunting him so he can't escape, making a mockery of him uh, to his enemies, driving him to total despair. This God is good and faithful. And just as we've remembered over the past couple of weeks, 
that the people of God ought to have known that the judgment of God would come upon them for their sin, so too the people of God ought to know that that wasn't the end of the story. See, God's kindness, his love, his faithfulness, his commitment to his covenant, this story was also there from the beginning. Even in the midst of experiencing God's judgment at the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC, God is still a source of hope because he promised that he would be. We've chronicled the last two weeks about the warnings that the Old Testament has for God's people if they fail to live out his covenant promises. But we also know that God promised that that's not the end of the story. Let me read you Deuteronomy 30 verse 4. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. And so the poet remembers the faithfulness of God, the promises of God. And so he can sit there and say in verse 26, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good to wait for God's salvation because it will come, because God has said it will. He will always redeem his people. Yes, he must take sin seriously, but he is a God of love, compassion and faithfulness. And what we're starting to see here is that the book of Lamentations, uh, it teaches us both that there is, of course, a time for protest and expression of pain and loss and anger and bewilderment as we face the horrors of life and the effects of our sin and the sin of others. But there is also a time for hope, a hope that is possible because of who God is. Verse 31, no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. God may reject his people, he may bring judgment, but it is not forever. He may bring grief and pain, but he will also have compassion for he loves us. He may bring affliction as he judges sin, but his heart is that there be no grief or pain. I think it's, it's, it's similar to the, the love that a parent has for a child. I hate giving my children consequences. Elisa can testify but I'm not very good at it. I, I just don't like doing it, and yet I know that I have to. I was telling the people at the Wednesday service that Amity and I have developed this tradition where on a Friday uh, after school, I pick her up and I take her to Treats on Franklin down the road, and we sit at the same table and we eat the same cakes and, uh, and drink the same drinks and we talk about school. And I love it, and she loves it. And yet, on about Wednesday, I have to start saying, you need to listen to me. You need to do what I ask you to do, otherwise we can't go to Treats on Franklin on a Friday. 
I can't, we, can't, we can't experience that nice thing if, we don't, if you don't behave as, a, as you need to behave. And I never want to do it, and I give her a hundred chances. But sometimes we don't go to tricks on Franklin. And this is what God is like with his people. He is a God who loves us. And yet sometimes he must bring discipline and correction and judgment. But that doesn't change who he is. As uh, Christopher Wright reflects on all of this, he says, God's anger against evil is a terrible reality. It is the negative outworking of God's goodness in rejecting and repelling all that is contrary to his nature and will, but it is not eternally definitive of his character. God is love. God is not anger. On the contrary, God is slow to anger, but abounding in love. The imbalance is a thousand to one. This is how God has revealed himself. Deuteronomy 7 Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Or in Micah 7 verse 8, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. The people of God have experienced the judgment of God and the wrath of God. And it's a terrible thing. But it does not change who God is. He is the faithful God. He is the loving God. He is love. But because of that, he must deal with injustice and sin. And of course, we know that he's dealt with that ultimately in Jesus. It is in Jesus that God pours out his anger and wrath on sin so that those who come to him in faith can find acceptance, mercy and grace and never have to fear the terrors of being cut away from God's presence like the people of God in 587 BC. The poem continues uh, for many more verses uh, after this uh, high point in the middle. The writer uh, chronicling their experiences, chronicling the judgment that God has brought on them, calls the people, given who God is, to repentance. And he ultimately ends up leading them in a confession prayer we see starting in about verse 40, lamenting the results of their sin and destruction. We've sinned and this is what has happened. And yet, he wants God to bring forgiveness and mercy to his people. And he wants God to bring judgment on the Babylonians for the way in which they've executed God's judgment far too harshly. And we know that's what happened. 
But let me just uh, note a couple of things to take away as we reflect on this chapter today. God is love. He hates wickedness and he will judge sin and banish it from his presence. But he is like a parent who loves their ch his children. Doesn't bring him pleasure, but he will bring discipline. And in your life, today is one of his ways of warning you that without Jesus, you will face the discipline and judgment of God. But in Christ, you can enjoy an eternity in his love and faithfulness. And finally, this chapter reminds us that we, and we as we live our lives, need to hold together two realities. That our experience of suffering and evil is horrible and tragic. And that the faithfulness of God is good and beautiful. So often we think that one of those truths negates the other. That if we're too upset or too distressed, then we don't really trust God. Or that if we truly trust God, then we're not allowing the pain to be as real as it needs to be. But Lamentations holds both together. Again, let me read to you from Christopher Wright. I come back to the need to affirm both great realities, doing full justice to the integrity of both. The horror of suffering and evil, which must be fully expressed and remembered, and the abiding faithfulness and goodness of God, which anchors the soul. To recognise and affirm each one is not to limit or wash away the other. Each exists in its, entirely, in its entirety, and each challenges the other. To say God is faithful and good and loving does not minimise the pain of loss and grief and suffering. And to cry out in the depths of our pain does not minimise the faithfulness and love of God. Lamentation shows us both go together. And Lamentations invites us ultimately, to find our strength and help as we look to Jesus, who was forsaken for us, that we might never be forsaken. Amen. Mm -hmm.